Some thought it was a bird. Others a plane. This was a real-life Superman, suspended between two high-rise buildings, doing something no one had ever done before or since. What could have possibly taken the headlines away from this spectacular event? Find out now on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. If I see three oranges, I have to juggle. And if I see two towers, I have to walk. That was the answer that Frenchman Philippe Petit told a reporter the day he pulled off what Time Magazine would call the artistic crime of the century. Petit was a magician, juggler, unicycle rider, and most importantly, a wire walker. At the age of 18, while sitting in a dentist office in France, Petit opened up a newspaper, and right there, big and bold, was an article about the construction of the World Trade Center towers. The ground had been broken. Completion was years away. Yet, at that very moment, Petit knew what he was going to do. He wanted the newspaper page. So as a diversion for the ripping sound, he faked a sneeze. It worked perfectly. Although he still had a toothache, he immediately left the office and started paving the path that would eventually lead him to the Big Apple. So how do you plan a walk across the high wire between two New York City towers that haven't been built yet? Very methodically. For the next six years, he secretly worked on making the event happen. Not that this was his first escapade. A few years before the Twin Towers, he also walked across the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and the massive pylons of the Sydney Harbour Bridge in Australia, both without permission. When you think of high-wire walking, the Walinda family comes to mind. Seven generations of Walindas have entertained the world. Nick Walinda has performed numerous walks for television specials, not only sanctioned with multiple permits, but also including hundreds if not thousands of people working on the production, with many fail-safes in place, sometimes even a harness in case things went awry. That was not the case when Petit pulled off the most impressive high-wire walk of all time. Two things were an absolute must. First, safety. For the risk of a fall from a 110-story building was a real possibility. Everything had to be perfect, including every piece of equipment. There was no room for error. Second, it had to be top secret. At any point, until Petit put his feet on the wire, if the attempt was found out, not only would it be over, but he and his team would be arrested for trespassing and a whole host of charges. Petit gathered a team of like-minded people, those with a flair for life who were willing to take huge risks. For months, he practiced in a field back in France, hundreds of hours walking the 200-foot wire while his cohorts tried to imitate the high winds of New York City and make him fall. A total of 10 members flew to New York City to scout out the buildings which were still under construction. When Petit first flew over the towers, his eyes widened and he said, impossible, 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 too big. But he knew this was his destiny. Now the Twin Towers had all types of people and equipment on site. Each of the team members got fake badges and pretended to be anything from construction workers and contractors to even a news crew from France. Pretending to take pictures, there wasn't even film in the camera. They got crucial information from the contractors and builders who were more than willing to tell them everything they needed to know. For months, Petit's crews surveyed the towers daily. But then, one day, Petit thought it was over. A man by the name of Barry Greenhouse recognized him. 
Greenhouse worked on the South Tower's 82nd floor, and he knew Petit didn't belong there. He had seen Petit street perform in Paris and had never forgotten it. Petit tried to play it off as mistaken identity, but Greenhouse wasn't having it. Finally, realizing the gig was up, Petit confessed that he was the street performer and told Greenhouse of his plans. Incredibly, Greenhouse liked the idea and agreed to be Petit's inside guy and let the crew use his office whenever needed. Originally, Petit planned to do his high-wire walk in the spring, but a disagreement with some team members caused them to leave, so the walk was moved back three months. Now being late summer, the risk was much higher. Not for safety, per se, but for getting caught. Also, an additional three months meant being closer to the official opening of the World Trade Center when scrutiny would be intense for all involved. However, all the planning, six years in the making, multiple trips across the Atlantic, and hundreds of hours up and down the towers meant there was no turning back now. The night before, Petit and the team started moving the equipment to the roof. The wire itself weighed over 400 pounds. Once on one of the vacant floors, a guard unexpectedly came in. They immediately hid under a tarp. For three hours, they remained motionless. The guard even smoked a cigarette within two feet of them. But they never moved. Once they were sure he was gone, on with the plan. Two teams, two towers, twice the chance of getting caught. After Petit recovered the arrow tied to a thin line shot from the second tower, they quickly moved from line to rope and then eventually the cable. Shortly before 5 a.m., it looked as though all hope was lost. After months of preparation, years of dreaming, they were way behind schedule. And if the sun rose and the wire wasn't ready, an arrest would be imminent before Petit even had a chance to set foot on the high wire. Finally, with no time to spare, the last two clamps were put in place. It was go time. Most of the team were back on the ground, looking up a quarter of a mile for what would seem like a lifetime, and symbolically it was. Not knowing exactly what was going on, they saw something falling. One member thought it was Petit plummeting to his death, but it was actually just a piece of his costume, and fortunately no one was directly below when it settled harmlessly on the sidewalk. Just after 7 a.m., for the next 45 minutes, Petit did what almost no one else in the world could or would do. After slowly walking step by step from the South Tower onto the wire, he realized it was safe and that he was in his element, or should I say on his element. So he showed off a little. Or if you ask the security guards who were waiting on him when he was finished, he showed off a lot. He went halfway, then turned around, back and forth. He even laid down on the one-inch wire and then, 110 stories up, with no net or safety harness, and no regrets, he did a somersault. His death-defying performance was one for the ages. By that time, everyone was looking up at Philippe Petit. News cameras were filming away, and New Yorkers who were on their way to work had all stopped to look up at the man from Paris, France, who gave them the show of a lifetime. Although all eyes in New York City were currently on Petit and his tightrope walking performance between high-rise buildings, it didn't get the attention of the rest of the country. In the days and weeks to come, the newspaper and television news did a few stories about the Daredevil event, but nowhere near what it deserved. Because on this day, 
the day that was locked in stone many months earlier, all eyes were 230 miles south of the Twin Towers in Washington, D.C. On that day, August 7, 1974, the entire country was debating the removal or resignation of President Richard Nixon. The discussion had been at a fever pitch for days. It had consumed the nation's capital and the entire country. Everyone had an opinion and was letting it be known. Why? Because, just over two years earlier, on June 17, 1972, police arrested five burglars breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters located in the Watergate Hotel complex in Washington, D.C., and it was quickly discovered that the crime was linked to President Nixon's re-election campaign. The following year, wall-to-wall coverage of hearings held by the Senate Committee over Watergate dominated the news. For four months, each of the three major television networks took turns daily covering the testimonies from all involved. It is estimated that 85% of the country with televisions watched at least one of the hearings. During the testimony, it was discovered that Nixon had secret recording devices installed in the Oval Office, the cabinet room of the White House, in his executive office building where there is a second presidential office, and on four of his personal telephones. After this discovery, the case went into afterburn. Congress, the courts, and the entire country wanted to hear what was on these tapes. Nixon was adamant that he had nothing to do with the break-in or cover-up and that the tapes were executive privilege and therefore not for public consumption. Nixon fought the release of the tapes to the bitter end, once even decreeing what was later called the Saturday Night Massacre, when he demanded that his Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. Instead, he immediately resigned. Nixon demanded the deputy AG to fire Cox, but instead he immediately resigned. Finally, the next in line at the Attorney General's office did Nixon's bidding and fired Cox. Nixon thought this would be the end of the investigation, but instead it just added fuel to the fire. Fast forward to late July of 1974. The U.S. Supreme Court had ruled unanimously that Nixon must turn over the tapes and the House of Representatives Judicial Committee had just approved three articles of impeachment, which would soon go to the entire House floor where impeachment was a certainty. However, conviction and removal from the Senate chamber were much more in doubt, and many believed that if Nixon went all out, he possibly could save himself from being the first president to be removed from office. Many Republican senators publicly backed the president, believing that he hadn't been aware of the crime and cover-up. On August 5th, Nixon reluctantly released the tapes and transcripts. In one tape that was recorded just six days after the break-in, Nixon and his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, discussed not only the Watergate break-in, but also how to keep the FBI and CIA from further investigating it. Known as the smoking gun tape, it proved devastating. Earlier support from Republican senators and House members vanished, and the real possibility of the president being impeached and removed was now a reality. What would Nixon do? According to his family and aides, he declared he was going to fight it all the way. Never give up was his style, and he wasn't changing now. Questions to Vice President Ford were not, do you support the president? They were, who will you appoint once you're in office? Hundreds of news reporters swarmed the Capitol building and the White House, waiting to hear what would happen next. Senator Barry Goldwater, one of Nixon's closest allies and a personal friend, told the president that if he didn't resign, he would be impeached, convicted, and removed from office. On this very day, 
both Philippe Petit's and President Nixon's fate were sealed. Back in New York City, grinning from ear to ear, Petit walked off the wire and into the arms of the waiting police. He was taken to Beekman Downtown Hospital for a psychological evaluation. Although one could argue you have to be crazy to be a wire walker, that isn't a clinical diagnosis, and he was shortly released. Charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct, he didn't know what would happen next. Jail time was a real possibility. Fortunately for Petit, New Yorkers weren't initially fans of the Twin Towers. Complaints included mirror image square buildings, the location, how it was controlled by the Port Authority, and adding 10 million square feet of building space to a city that already had millions unoccupied were just a few. One employee of the Empire State Building's observation deck said that the World Trade Center looked like something resembling the box that the Empire State Building might come in. Ouch. But on this day, everything changed. Petit's walk, although illegal, transformed the public's opinion about the troubled project. New Yorkers now saw it as a building that had been conquered. Petit had humanized the towers and somehow made two of the tallest and most imposing buildings in the world seem endearing, even friendly. After his release, spectators cheered and police officers wanted his autograph. That afternoon, at the same time that Washington, D.C. was in turmoil over Nixon's waning presidency, the Manhattan District's attorney dropped all charges against Petit if in return he would later perform his craft for the children in Central Park. The Port Authority, days after arresting him, gave him a lifetime pass to the observation deck. He now had the entire city on his side. The city, the country for that matter, needed this upbeat diversion at that very moment. As for President Nixon, he realized it was over. The next day, he met with congressional leaders, White House staff, and had a private meeting with his family before giving a live televised speech from the Oval Office announcing that he would be resigning the presidency of the United States effective noon the next day, August 9th. Being the first time in America's history a sitting president had resigned, this was now the lead story not only across the United States, but also the entire world. No other news. Not even a Frenchman walking a high wire between two of the tallest buildings in the world could penetrate the newspapers and newscasts across the land. Three weeks later, on August 29th, Petit made good on his promise to New York City and performed on a 600-foot-long wire over 80 feet in the air above a pond in Central Park. The crowd was ecstatic. The children loved it. And Petit, showing that trademark smile, said this was the most beautiful punishment he could have received. By this time... The country was yearning to turn the page, and Petit and his craft offered a great distraction. Multiple articles were written about his so-called punishment, and many were hearing for the first time what had happened earlier in New York City. Philippe Petit went on to do at least 30 more death-defying performances across the world, all of them legal and with permission, of course. He is now a world-renowned motivational speaker, and in 2012 he did a great TED Talk about his passion and his love of life. It's still available to view online today. President Nixon, largely secluded from public life, wrote his memoirs, traveled as an elderly spokesman many years later, but was never the same. Two men, whose paths never crossed, shared the fate of history of being part of a high rise and a great fall at the very same time. And there you have it. All the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. 
Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been.